0: If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Singletracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get a free Singletracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Travis Council. Travis is the Executive Director of the New England Mountain Bike Association, which is also known as NIMBA, and he's currently based out of Vermont. Thanks for joining us, Travis. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So tell us a bit about NIMBA. What's the group's mission, and how large is your membership currently?
1: Sure. Yeah, so uh, NIMBA's mission is to provide epic riding experiences. Preserve open space and guide the future of mountain biking in New England. Um, we're really focused on trails, advocacy, and community. That's kind of our, our three pillars that we talk about a lot. Okay. And we have about 8,000 members throughout New England, um, and and we've really seen a good growth in that in the recent years as well. Cool. So one of the things that's
0: un- kind of unique about NIMBA is how – the group is organized. So can you tell us a little bit about that in terms of how the parent organization works with chapters and and that sort of model?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So yeah, we are a little different than some of the other organizations out there, you know, IMBA and VIMBA and a few others, just in the sense of from a technical side where we are a singular organization, one, one nonprofit, one EIN basically. So, and then have 32 chapters Uh, subgroups, subchapters below us uh, are are all within that that one organization, which is awesome. Kind of gives us this regional presence, but also has a lot of local differences and local focuses, depending on what those chapters need. Um, So yeah, we represent uh, basically five of the six New England states. VIMBA, Vermont Mountain Bike Association, has Vermont covered very well. Uh, So we represent all the other states in in New England and and, uh, have... Have a number of chapters really well spread out uh, throughout those states, and we added, we've added three in the last year, so we are seeing a, a pretty good uptick in, in local organization jumping on board.
0: Yeah, that's cool, and I feel like Nimba is one of those groups that's been around for a long time, like longer than some of the others. What, how, what
1: year was it established, and yeah. sort of how did that come about? Yeah, so we are uh, this year we're actually celebrating our 35th anniversary. So um, when you think about the age of, of mountain biking or whatever we'd consider mountain biking, it's it's pretty much uh, towards the beginning of that. Yeah, a, a lot of the the start, the formal start of NEMBA was in 1987 with a group of individuals that were basically trying to ensure access remained or or at least was authorized for a popular riding space outside of Boston. Hmm. Um, so it really grew out of a an advocacy effort, a community meeting mm-hmm. uh, where someone just stood up and said, I'm, I'm with NEMBA, even though there wasn't a formal organization <laughs> wow. at that point. Uh, and then it kind of grew out of that. Um, and really, the interesting thing is, is as soon as folks recognized that that experience was not unique to that riding area in the sense that uh, a number of other mountain bikers or, or trail groups were kind of struggling with the same thing across New England, mm-hmm. the concept of a chapter system really grew out of that and and really kind of still lived at that local level, but again, had that regional presence to kind of provide some, you know, just provide some formality to it and, and really, and, and it's grown substantially since then. Thankfully, we don't spend all of our time proving that we have the right to be someplace anymore. Well, that's still true in some places, but we've, we've really grown into a, a trails organization that does a lot of great work. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned how Nimba
0: and the chapters work together. What's the relationship with Imba?
1: Is is there a relationship, or or how does that work? Yeah. So, no formal relationship as of right now. It, you know, we did grow up organization-wise, very similar timeline, um, and kind of different focus areas. There was a lot of work together at the beginnings, especially around insurance and other things like that. Mm-hmm. The organizations kind of went their own ways in the early two thousands. And since I've come on board, we've, we've had a much kind of a bigger effort to, to revive that relationship. I talk with, with the folks at IMBA regularly, and we kind of look at each other as, as excellent resources, both with a, a strong presence in the Northeast and then also a, a national presence that, that NEMBA really doesn't have. So no formal relationship, but definitely very similar missions and goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned VIMBA as well, so I look at those kind of three organizations as 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 really being a powerhouse the more that we work together so really excited to see more collaboration in the future there for sure
0: yeah yeah that's great and how many miles of single track if you know does uh nimba support like through the chapters and and all the different groups
1: yeah that's a great question you know i don't have a, a specific number that's definitely on our our list of goals and metrics to know mm-hmm. this year as we as we learn a little bit more about the chapters it's certainly above a thousand wow. when I talk to some of our chapters you know they have hundreds of miles you know on an individual chapter level and we have mm-hmm. thirty two of them granted not all of them manage that many but we're definitely over a thousand miles of of trails you know that we manage in a variety of ways whether that's merely just supporting trimming and keeping the trails open all the way down to helping to build bridges or bench cutting or really building new trail systems. So it's a quite impressive list when you start looking at all of our chapters combined.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, you've been at NIMBA for a little
1: over a year. What were you doing before that? Yeah. So I came in uh, in fall of 2020 and prior to that I was actually living out in Hawaii. Uh, I owned a, a bike shop in Waikiki, and then had worked previously for the Hawaii Bicycling League, so an advocacy, mm. a bicycle advocacy group out there. Uh, so really got my roots in the advocacy world there. Uh, also was the president of an IMBA chapter while I was out there, the Oahu Mountain Bike Ohana. Um, so got you know my, I was always more passionate, to be honest, about mountain biking. So it was good to have have that, and and then also still have my day job revolve around biking as well. So. But we moved back to the East Coast both my wife and I are from the New England area to begin with so it was a great opportunity to move back and, and continue that passion of mountain biking specifically uh, across New England so yeah that's a big change though I mean
0: and yeah interesting that you're in, involved in advocacy in both places and I imagine it's it's a lot different uh, sort of the issues that you face and, and sort of what the mountain bike community is like uh, was was that a hard transition? I mean, it sounds like you were, you and your wife are, are
1: from New England, so so maybe not. Yeah, I'd say you know, in some ways, yes, a big transition. In, in a lot of ways, not really. Hawaii has such this local focused, you know, very much so uh, local roots, and and really, while it's a very populous and, and and popular place for people to visit, there's still that local connection, which I feel like is. Very much so, what uh, exists in New England, mm-hmm. um, and, and coming back to that, and, and really recognizing that all advocacy is is done at the local level for the most part. You know, right. the needs are known there, and the trails are built there. Um, so to to take that mentality, and you know, the the weather's a little different, and the riding <laughs> conditions are a little different, but the uh, the actual efforts are are quite similar in some aspects. So yeah, it was it's really nice to be able to return back to to my roots and and help an organization that. Uh, has has been around for 35 years, just, you know, continue to transition and grow.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you say that that, uh, mountain biking in Hawaii is very, like sort of locally driven and that, you know, I would imagine, you know, Hawaii is a tourist destination and thinking about trails here in the U.S. too, you know, there are certainly clubs that maintain trails that are more sort of like destination type trails. And then, you know, I would imagine in New England, a lot of the trails you're dealing with are those sort of local trails. I mean, outside of a few locations, there there aren't a lot of those where people are traveling like across the country to come ride the trails. Um, is is that the case, or or are you dealing with sort of a a destination mountain bike tourist constituency?
1: I think you hit it right on the, on the head in the sense that there's a few locations. Yeah, you think of the Kingdom Trails, you think of Carabasset. you think of more of these destination or you know they might actually be a little further away than uh, than your local trails and and I think you know we are starting to see a lot more local travel if that makes sense where you know folks are willing to take a long weekend to someplace or to connect the dots there's a great initiative called bike borderlands you know it's more of a, a campaign to tie together some really awesome riding locations kind of on the the U S Canada border across multiple states up there. So mm-hmm. we are seeing that effort to really get people to travel to these destinations, but, mm-hmm. but they, all in all, a lot of these are local riding destinations, local areas that, that kind of grew out of the, the local ridership, just needing more, more places to ride and, or, you know, improving the places that they had. Yeah. Um, and when somebody does that really well, uh, you do start seeing the, the, the tourism kind of shift. There And I, I think we're seeing that, especially with towns and, and municipalities starting to recognize that mountain biking and outdoor recreation can be a huge driver, economic driver or tourism driver or however you want to highlight that. So I think we're starting to see that shift pretty heavily.
0: Yeah. Well, sort of along those same lines, Nimbafest is back for 2022. And I know a lot of people are really stoked to hear that and are, are getting excited about the event. So what, what's it going to look like this year?
1: Yeah. No, so th- this is really exciting for us. Uh, you know, Nemba Fest has not happened the last few years, uh, largely pandemic-related uh, and location issues. So it is in a new location this year. We're, we're shifting it to Carabasset Valley, Maine, mm-hmm. which is an excellent riding location if you haven't been up there. It is one of our chapters as well. That's a really cool highlight is that the Carabasset region, Nemba chapter, has really grown this trail system over the last 10 years, mm. has a paid trail crew, has a big master plan, is continually expanding, and has really become a, a destination. Yeah. It, it's right at Sugarloaf, so there's a big winter draw, but to, to really see this summer draw. So excited to bring Nemba Fest there. It's going to be the, the first weekend in August, the 5th to 7th. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it it's, it's going to, of course, it's going to have a little different feel just because it's in a new location, but I'm really excited that we're still able to have a a big festival, and there'll be camping, and there'll be concerts, and you know the, the things demo bikes. You know, pending the availability of demo bikes, yeah. but you know we're really still trying to focus on having it be a mountain bike festival that's really aimed at families and all different levels of riders. You know, we have special programming within NembaFest for the women's summit, for adaptive use riders, for children and skills clinics. So there's a little bit of something for everybody. It's not a focus specifically on one type of riding. There'll even be a lift open at Sugarloaf for downhill riding. So there's there's going to be quite a, a, a variety of, of activities. It will be slightly smaller than previous NemoFest, largely due to just figuring out the logistics of a, of a new location, mm-hmm. um, which very much so could support a larger uh, festival and already does. But we just want to make sure we work out the kinks and focus on quality before quantity. Yeah. But we're really excited to to bring that together and yeah. It, it's going to be a fun event.
0: Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. And pardon my ignorance. I mean, Maine sounds like it's, it's way out there, but like, where's Cara Bassett in relation to like where people live? Like, where do you even would, you, if you flew into there, where would you even go?
1: Sure. Yeah. So if you were to fly in, I mean, whether it's Boston or Portland, Maine, um, so you basically go up 95 and then, then cut over in the Augusta area and, and go up about another hour and a half or so. So it is certainly out there. It is a, a committed drive from most places in New England but the nice thing is that it's also a location that you're not going to get bored at in the sense that if you could take a week off or at least a long weekend there's a lot of trails to do there's there's you know other activities it's you're out and out in the woods you know you're certainly yeah. in, in prime mountain bike world from a, you know as as far of trails or, or rides as you want to do you can do out there so you know King, it was previously in Kingdom Trails which which was also pretty far out there in the sense of, you know, somebody coming from a, a populated area in in, in New England, mm-hmm. um, was a committed drive. So I'm not going to say, you know, Carabass, it's much more convenient, but, uh, it's certainly, a, a great destination that I think people will definitely see the value of, of coming to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely heard a lot of good things about the trails there over the years. And yeah, I mean, EWS racing, um, and, I mean, just, just the addition of like having the option for people to do lift served riding and stuff, like that seems huge. And it's really awesome that you're able to have that event that sort of caters to all bikers. I mean, you mentioned various groups of people, but you know, even within mountain biking, we all kind of have a different style of
1: riding. So yeah, Sugarloaf has brought on Adam Craig, previous, you know, professional mountain biker who's really focused on bringing those mountain bike events to the ski area, basically, you know, with Enduro World Series and Eastern States Cup and NEMBA and Fest all coming to Carabasset Valley, I think we're seeing a really awesome kind of explosion of, of mountain bike activity uh, in the valley there. And and I, I I don't see it stopping anytime soon, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, so you sort of hinted at this uh, in an earlier answer, but I want to know how this recent boom in mountain biking has affected NIMBA. You know, on the positive end, I would imagine that you're seeing more riders, more people being engaged. But on the other end, you know, we are hearing about increased user conflicts uh, in a lot of places. So how's that sort of boom in mountain biking playing out in New England?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, you hit on definitely the positives and negatives of it. I think the, the big positive is there's more people riding, either getting into the sport for the first time or rediscovering the sport or just finding more time for the sport than there has been in a long time, if not for you know yeah. the highest numbers ever. So we certainly have seen our membership increase double digits over the last couple of years. And, and we're still seeing that, that grow, as I mentioned, new chapters coming on board and uh, new activities and things of that sort. So we're, we are really seeing a, an increase in, in an excellent way. I think the other cool thing is we're seeing a strong increase in non mountain bikers joining our organization or supporting our efforts, hmm. people that enjoy hiking or walking or other activities, even winter activities, cross country skiing and, and snowmobilers and who recognize that NEMBA is the largest trail maintainer, trail builder, trail organization in the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, and that we are while we are primarily a mountain bike organization, we are very much so a trails organization. Hmm. And I think you know, feeding into that second question around the conflicts and the kind of tensions that build as as trail systems start getting uh, crowded, I think by positioning ourselves more as this trail organization and these not just out there advocating for mountain biking, but advocating for the value of trails for all users mm-hmm. really kind of diffuses some of that in, in a really good way of that's not to say there isn't conflict and there's, you know, it only takes one one idiot to you know piss off a bunch of other people, so right. we do deal with that. But I, I do think that we're starting to see this you know better drive to just let's let's have you know more trails and better understanding. We've adopted some some campaigns uh, that actually Bike Borderlands put together called Ride with Gratitude to really emphasize that shared use and um, you know stewardship mentality of of being out there on the trails. IMBA also has a Trails are Common Ground. Approach that that we are certainly signed on to and uh and supporting, and of course, I like the you know be nice say hi campaign very simple yeah uh, just nice reminder that you know say hi to each other, have fun out there so I, I think you know we are hopefully skirting some of those negatives just by really emphasizing the the value for trail users, yeah. And, and that's not to say that there aren't spots that really still are overcrowded and, and there's just a, a demand that's higher than the, the trail system can support. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those situations, we work with the towns and, and, uh, and cities and states to, to ideally find a solution to increase trail access and increase the amount of the networks that, that we can spread people around on so that we can reduce those conflicts.
0: Yeah. Are you finding that those organizations are more receptive to that? just based on, you know, these these increases that we're seeing?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, we're seeing, especially the northern New England states, you know, the Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine states who have really had a strong recreational economy for a long time in the skiing industry and in the snowmobiles, et cetera, et cetera, winter activities, hunting, uh, that their adoption of mountain biking and the value of, of trail access is really you know a no-brainer for a lot of those states and local organizations i think as you start going further south where maybe the economic focus has not been as much on trails it's taking a little bit more of an adoption but we are seeing groups and organizations come together that are really focused on showing the value of of trails i can think of uh, connecticut outdoor recreational alliance as one good example basically a, a conglomerate of all these outdoor recreation folks that are basically showing the value of of trails to the the state and, and local areas so that there's this better adoption of they're not just out there for people to walk their dogs on. Like these actually have a, a really valuable both economic as well as health and you know other other purposes. And so we, we are definitely seeing more adoption. I would say actually at the local level, the town level, we're really seeing a strong understanding and appreciation for that. The number of our chapters that say, hey, our, our town has this forest and they're willing to put in 10 miles of trail. We just got to help them do it. Like those conversations are happening rather frequently, which is really a cool outcome of, I think, a side effect to the pandemic and, and people just rediscovering the outdoors. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that's that's great. We're hearing similar things, I think all across the country that, yeah, you know, towns are now, In some cases, they're going to these mountain bike groups and saying, hey, we want some trails. Like, can you guys help us? And and that's really a 180 from what it used to be where
1: the tables have turned. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. where We would go to them and beg and beg and, you know, take years and years to get stuff done. And now, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are even they're helping fund a lot of these trails as well. And so yeah, that's, it feels like we're in a good position for sure. Are there a lot of opportunities for new trail builds, uh, in your area?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it varies by location. I think Maine very much so, uh, is exploding in the mountain bike world. Um, the opportunities to build new trails, just given the open space and uh, recreational economy there is, is huge. There was a um, a million dollar fund set up for trail building in in New England trail building projects, or sorry, in Maine specifically for trail building projects, which is impressive and pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, what is the land sort of ownership like in Maine? I mean, are, are there a lot of uh, government? owned land or is it private land or or what is that like
1: a lot of it would be uh there is certainly a lot of state land um and those have existing trails and hiking trails but i would say a lot of the the positive again is at that town and municipal level Uh, and then we are seeing a lot of relationship building with land trusts and more that private or uh less of a government agency relationship which is great you know i think land trusts are a huge potential and You know, one of the big differences between, say, us and, say, uh, out west organizations, we're not dealing with federal land. We're not dealing with BLM. We're not dealing with that. But we are dealing with a lot of different land owners, um, which has its positives and negatives. It can be a a good domino effect as, you know, you find one land trust or town who's really on board and it kind of opens the doors, if you will, uh, for surrounding and connecting lands. So um, which is great. And, and, And I think it's also impressive when you start looking into it how much land some of those land trusts and and other groups do have access to. So the more that we work with them, Mm -hmm. the more opportunity is showing itself. So, you know, there are certain areas around Boston or the larger cities where it is hard to find uh, new opportunities. There's certainly opportunities to improve trails and and make them either more accessible or, or more sustainable. But there's certainly places where we're seeing a pretty high ability to put in, Really as many miles of trails as we can either fund or, or build, which is, which is a cool opportunity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, yeah. And, and you mentioned that, uh, Nimba is seeing people joining from all different, uh, activity groups. So not just mountain bikers. Uh, you've got hikers and, and other people. And it sounds like there's a good coalition of people who are interested in trails and recreation, but I imagine there are also, still folks who are opposed to mountain biking and not wanting to share the trails or are worried about environmental impacts or, or they say they're worried about that. Are there s- any ways that, you found, uh, that you've found that you you can work with these folks or that, you know, maybe you can kind of counter some of that uh, opposition to mountain biking?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of that is the relationship building with either individuals uh, who might have these complaints and feelings or, larger groups you know we are in in the grand scheme of of trail users mountain bikers are certainly still some of the newcomers mm-hmm. as well as some of the higher use or your higher impact not, not always in an environmental way but you know a, a mountain biker going down a trail can be a little more of a distraction than you know two hikers passing themselves so i i, I can understand the the impact or the you know perceived notion that that mountain bikers have Um, I think once we do create those relationships and have those conversations and show up to their event to help out or whatever the, you know, know, showing good faith, I I think some of those relationships do change. You know, there are certainly people whose minds are not going to change. And and sometimes you just have to acknowledge that and say, cool, well, there's a lot of other opportunities over here. I'm going to go explore those opportunities. and, And hopefully, you know, history will prove itself to be progressive and somebody in a different mind will come in and, and you know and change. So I think that's been the cool thing in the last couple of years is, you know, rather than feeling like and you just expressed it too, rather than feel like we're going to these organizations or towns or, and kind of begging or or trying to prove our worth or banging our heads against the doors, mm-hmm. doors are opening and we are seeing people come to us um, wanting our input and assistance. I think we still have a lot of advocacy work to do to kind of clean up some of the historical uh, natures of that. When I think about mm. some of the the state organizations, DCR and, and in Massachusetts and deep in Connecticut and mountain biking is just not well represented at their, you know, decision-making levels, whether it's a forest master plan or a conservation area or whatever, it, you know, it's not mountain biking. is just not included in those conversations, which is just Mm -hmm. uh, a larger advocacy effort than what I expect to happen at the local level. So that's again, why, why NEMBA exists so that we can find our way to have a seat at those tables. So it's, it's an ongoing effort. Thankfully, I feel like it's a a vast improvement over what it was when we started this organization, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but, but there's still some efforts to be made.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I recently heard, I guess, about a case that NIMBA was a part of where there was a group that was opposed to mountain bike access. And, and one of their arguments was that that water quality was going to be impacted. And uh, it sounded like NIMBA or some of your members or people involved with the group actually were able to, to get that data and to say, you know, actually, water quality has improved since, you know, mountain bikers have been there. Can you, can you talk about that case and kind of what you guys learned from that?
1: Yeah, so I think you're speaking specifically of, of one out in Wachusett, Massachusetts, um, which is an ongoing, uh, unfortunately, ongoing kind of access. And um, a lot of that boils down to interpretation of data and presentation of, of of data. The standard argument that mountain bikers have a bigger impact, whether it's on water quality or trail erosion or things like that, are often not based in the best science let's put it that way or they're they're picking from very specific studies and and then they base policies on these very specific uh, studies you know for example there's a study out of out of new hampshire that says you know trails not even just mountain bikers trails disrupt wildlife for 400 feet on either side of the trails therefore we shouldn't have trails within 400 feet of each other and it's just like (laughs) You know, when there's a house, a row of houses over there, I think we're we're already disrupting, so I don't think the trail's gonna... So it's like, yeah. it's all situational. And I think we are recognizing that NEMBA can play a larger role in providing, or at least sourcing, finding the data out there to present counter-arguments to this. One role that I, I hope to see in the future is, is an actual staff member who's focused on some of these larger advocacy efforts. You know, a lot of this is done at the volunteer level or or a piece of my time, whereas some of these projects, whether it's state, whether it's a specific land trust, whatever it might be, uh, do require a larger focus and a longer term commitment to really creating that relationship, showing alternate data or or, or different or updated data that might present a better argument than what they're saying. Um, And I think some of it is really just overcoming a historical precedent. You know, that's that's really the, the main thing is that you know, when mountain bikers came about, people, especially hiking, uh, if not equestrian as well, were kind of like, nope, we don't want this new. This is very different, and and that's a fine reaction. But hopefully, we can work on having better data to say, well, let's let's reevaluate that. Yeah, and and I think we have some very active members who are are eager to push that envelope in a positive way. You know, we are not a radical organization by any means. That, uh, but I think we are happy to stand up when something doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, some of those things take years and years and years. And, and then that person that you've been dealing with retires or moves on, and then you've got to recreate a new relationship with somebody. It's like, so the advocacy world is messy, but certainly worthwhile.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it seems, it definitely takes a certain kind of person and it, it you know, I'm glad that you you definitely have a positive sort of outlook on it, but I could see how it could feel, very thankless. And that, yeah, like you said, you could, you could build these relationships and then that person moves on and and you got to start all over again. And, and also just even you're like, I have the data here, but you know, government doesn't work like at the speed of, of what we want it to sometimes. And, and so, yeah, I could, I could see how that could be frustrating.
1: And I, I think some of the, the either people who are oblivious to that, or maybe just a little naive to what the process is to get, you know, approvals and things like that. I, I, I'm hopeful that as we can explain these processes better and involve more people in it, that they can see, like, it's not as easy as saying, I want a new trail or I want to ride my bike here. Yeah. Uh, there's pretty complex relationships and approvals and, and at times, you know, uh, asking for forgiveness because, you know, there are plenty of places where trails existed before permission. And, um, and, and really just figuring out how to move forward on that uh, mm-hmm. is another huge, huge piece of the puzzle. Um, but, you know, I think coming at it with a positive approach and coming at it with a collective, collaborative approach of like, I want to work with you. You know, one of the big things that we do provide and is, is that huge volunteer, you know, resource for a lot of these land managers. Like a tree falls down, you know, or just general maintenance. Like volunteers are eager to help with that to a point that would, would be unsustainable if it was a paid resource. Um, so I think we're really working on better capturing that data and presenting that to land managers who said, Hey, we put in 5,000 hours of time into this plot, which, you know, using their metrics, you know, the, the army Corps of engineers says a volunteer hours worth almost 20 bucks an hour. So it's like, all of a sudden we can say, listen, we just put a hundred thousand dollars of, of work into your property. You're, you know, thank you. You know, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I think, you know, there's, there's different tactics and we're figuring out what works best for each, each group for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I mean, you, you raise the other side of the issue too. I mean, you guys are dealing with government agencies, land managers, but you're in the middle between that and mountain bikers and there are mountain bikers that you represent. They're the people, I mean, you represent all mountain bikers really. Mm -hmm. And not just the ones who are dues paying members, the ones who are like, yes, I'm on board with the NIMA mission and, you know, I want to do things the right way. I mean, I, I would imagine a lot of younger riders, you know, hear like how complicated it is to get a new trail built or to, we get through the red tape to, you know, reroute a section of trail. And they're just like, that's ridiculous. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to do it on my own. I can't wait for that. So yeah. I mean, how do you balance that? Is that frustrating for you to, to have to like you're representing people who like you may not even really have any contact with or, or any sort of relationship with.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I definitely think that we are, like you said, we represent mountain biking and mountain bikers. I have no doubts in my mind there are more than 8,000 mountain bikers in New England, so we ser- certainly do not represent the, the full, full uh, amount. Um, you know, I think as I look, you know, we unfortunately have the role of, of at times being viewed as like the no person or like we can't do that group and it's like yeah it's so much more complicated than that and i don't pretend like i'm going to be able to explain it to everybody but i do hope that when people can look at nemba and look at the collective voice that we have and the hundreds of relationships that we've built with land managers and decision makers uh, the value there is so much bigger than the value of an individual trail or individual project that you'd like to see move forward on a rapid timeline. I, it's hard to hear that at times and it's really hard sometimes to recognize that like getting something approved in the proper way takes time and effort. You know, and that's part of the reason we've seen more and more working with private and and land trusts and, you know, private lands and things can move faster. But I do think there's a value in the public sphere of of ensuring that it's done in a, in an appropriate way and, and that we represent the mountain bike community that we want to be represented. If that makes sense, you know, that we are yeah. not just out there blazing new trails and not out there, you know, ignoring, you know, questions and, and things of that sort. I do think we want to make sure we come at it with a logical approach that there's mm-hmm. sometimes that we have to, you know, push back on these governmental agencies if they're being too slow or not, not recognizing the demand. But I do think that, you know, the, the slow long term plan is probably better than a radical quick plan. <laughs> yeah. But it is it is frustrating at times to have people either say negative things about NEMBA or really not know what NEMBA is. It's it's tricky to find that balance of saying, you know, we're doing awesome work and we've got a really good group of people, volunteer or paid, that really want, as as our mission states, to guide the future of mountain biking and we'd love to have as many people along for that ride as possible. But uh ideally, people aren't doing things that are actively working against that. You know, that's that's the goal. <laughs> right. We do. We do have to pick up some of that that slack every now and then in the sense of while we are the biggest ones representing mountain bikers, we will get called when somebody does something that a manager doesn't like, even if it wasn't us, you know, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't directly our group. So that just comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and I guess, you know, as frustrated as an individual biker may be about trail access, I mean, you guys are equally frustrated when, yeah, one person does something. And yeah, I mean, it affects, it affects all the work that you're trying to do. And so, yeah, that's, that's a tricky, tricky balance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Not one that I claim to be an expert at, but, uh, I do <laughs> think that we are, we're seeing a much better swing there as we, you know, we really are going through a transition as an organization. We've grown staff-wise. Obviously, myself, we have a new executive director, but we have four other full-time staff members focused on a variety of things. So I think we're uh, we we talk to ourselves as a thirty-five-year-old startup in, in a great way <laughs> that we have such a, a, a long history and, and great uh, examples to build on, but we also have a lot of things that we're working on changing or improving, or you know, just kind of bringing NEMBA to a different. A different level, which is exciting. Really
0: cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, lots of lots of opportunities and potential. So, one of the things that you mentioned about some of the New England states is that they have traditionally relied on uh, winter sports, skiing and, and snowmobiling. Obviously, it's a great area for that. What about fat biking? Is that popular in New England? And and like, how big of a thing is that? Is it something that that a lot of the chapters devote resources to.
1: Yeah, no, fat biking has certainly expanded in the recent years. I'd say definitely, again, in those northern states, the the ones that have a little more consistent snowpack year, you know, throughout the winter. Our chapters have purchased snow dogs, uh, you know, more of a, a grooming tool, mm-hmm. uh, as well as some chapters use snowmobiles. Some chapters hand pack, you know, a lot of a lot of trails for fat bike riding. Oh, wow. uh, you know, there's there's a lot of efforts. I think it's it's also just a stubbornness that we don't want the riding season to be as <laughs> as short as it would be if we didn't do it in the winter. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of that. Would be more what I would call like you know just making the single track last last year round. But we are seeing a lot of great partnerships with the the snowmobile clubs in the sense that they still very much have the right of way, but we are allowed to use their trails and especially if if we're out there at odd hours and and. Uh, you know midweek, et cetera there's a lot less traffic uh, and I think that's an amazing uh advocacy or or relationship that a lot of those clubs have with land managers and things the The amount of miles of snowmobile trails that really only exist in the winter is quite impressive uh, and and definitely an organization I think we should tie ourselves closer with largely you know unfortunately, as the snow season becomes shorter and shorter, I think having those relationships. Uh, extend into the summer and, and other trail use would be really great yeah uh, and then of course we're seeing a lot of like the cross-country nordic skiing centers start opening up their groomed trails to fat biking as well which we actually we've had several races and several events at these cross-country areas which is great i think they are still figuring out you know when it's super soft fresh snow they don't allow fat biking just because it you know it would sink in more than normal but that's great for cross-country skiing when it's hard and maybe icy, which wouldn't be fun for cross-country skiing. That's great for fat biking. So I think they're <laughs> yeah. seeing uh, this nice um, user balance there. You know, There's several of them, several ski areas now that actually rent fat bikes at their Nordic cross-country skiing areas, which is awesome. So we're really seeing a lot of winter riding kind of exploding in the recent years. And, and that's awesome. I love it. Yeah. That's, that's really good
0: to hear that fat biking is alive and well. And that even that some of those, uh, you know, formerly conflicting user groups are, are figuring out how to share the trails and everything. You know, it, it seemed like there was that fat bike boom. Gosh, I don't even know how long ago that was like eight years ago or 10 yeah. now, man, when like every bike brand was coming out with a fat bike and you know, yeah, it feels like it's fallen off the radar, but I, I think, like you're saying, it's it's really taken hold in the places where it makes sense, and, and New England is is definitely one of those places.
1: Yeah, I think there'll be pockets of it that that exist. You know I, know, I know there's some big brands that are you know no longer making fat bike or fat tire bikes, and you know that's maybe just a overall market shift, but I do think that. Uh, especially this winter anybody that put up a fat bike for sale in the in the used market it was grabbed in in minutes uh so (laughs) I, i think that that uh that just desire to to get out and ride whether that's the increase in recreation in general or just wanting to ride in the winter it's a it's a cool sport and very different than mountain biking in the summer so kind of provides a a fun different approach
0: yeah Well, let's talk about a different type of bike, e-bikes. So what, what's the current discussion around e-bike and e-bike trail access look like, uh, in New England?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, e-bikes are one of those topics that, uh, I think, you know, make people's hair stand on end at at times just from a, you know, it's a unnecessarily divisive topic, uh, in my opinion. And, and Nemba is certainly, we've had a colorful past when it comes to e-bike either advocacy or anti-advocacy. Um, anti-advocacy, have, yes. Yeah, We have not been, you know, the most uh, supportive of that. And I think a lot of that came from uh, fear of the unknown, which is probably similar to the hiking and, and equestrian world when mountain bikers came about, you know, the,
0: Definitely. Yeah.
1: the, are these going to impact our ability to access trails? Uh, you know, that conversation, which, uh, you know, in the mid 2000s, 2013s, 14s. And I think that's, that has changed, we put out a, a new e-bike statement that is a much more neutral stance around, especially class one e-bikes, stating that they have a, a much more similar ride experience to traditional mountain bikes than, say, a dirt bike or some other motorized vehicle. I think there's, when I look at the e-bike conversation, I see it kind of two, two pieces. I see a social aspect and more of a legal or technical aspect. Okay. Um, and I, I think Namba's role in both of those is, is kind of interesting on the social side i think the more that people are ex- introduced to e-bikes and the more the, their friends end up riding them the more or i should say the less they're going to matter in in a good way they're not going to feel out of place they're not going to feel like it's just going to be like oh that guy you know he's on an e-bike today i think the one thing i realize is that you know it's not an e-biker or a, a mountain biker we're all mountain bikers you know it's most most people who own electric mountain bikes have traditional mountain bikes have other bikes in their fleet and they ride whatever they feel like riding. So on the social side, I see a greater adoption of, or just recognizing that it's you know, pretty darn similar. Yeah. And we're all trail users.
0: I mean, just like, you know, a hiker, we want to be respectful of them and, and their experience. And we all love trails. That's what we all have in common.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, the main goal there is that creating that community. You know, I mentioned earlier trails advocacy and community. And to me, community is, Goes well beyond mountain bikers, well beyond what you, we'd call traditional mountain bikers, into all trail users—people e, on electric mountain bikes, people on adaptive use, people on whatever it might be. To me, that's the community we're representing. And, and while I, I will not pretend like there's universal acceptance within the NEMBA leadership uh, around e-bikes, I think the conversation is moving in a in a positive way, which is great. That's that's the goal. And you know as i look more at that technical or legal side i do think that people who want to ride electric mountain bikes or or really want to be advocates for that we do need them to to come forward and and help us on the legal uh, approach you know technically in a lot of places they are viewed as motorized vehicles and they are not allowed on a lot of trails just from a technical side you know there's states like vermont that have have worked to change that in some aspects. You know, the Forest Service in Vermont basically now identifies a Class One electric mountain bike as an electric or a motorized bicycle, not a motorized vehicle, therefore allowing it to go in places that motorized vehicles would not allow. Okay. So, uh, whether it's those types of approaches or or working on on you know a more generalized approach to how to categorize electric motor motor, or, sorry, electric bicycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I don't think that there's any denying that they have a motor on them. They very much so are assisted bicycles. But I think they are also very different than what the original definition of a motorized vehicle was intended for. You know, they're much similar to a, a bicycle. So uh, on the social side, I think we're we're quickly seeing that, you know, they're just part of our community and they're, they're already everywhere, you know, whether they're allowed or not, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, technically speaking. And, and you know, <laughs> I should also preface that. Enforcement is is quite minimal as well right yeah. now. There's there's not enough resources, nor is there a, a real demand to do that. So, uh, you know, e bike conversations to me, I always go back to one: it's a mountain biker, it's a person riding a bicycle. Two, I think far more important than what type of bike you're on is rider education, and you know, I call it the "Don't Be an Ass" campaign. It's more just like. <laughs> Be a, be a good rider. Be a steward of the trails. Be an example for everybody else out there. Be an example of the mountain bike community. And beyond that, basically, you know, follow the rules. But at the same time, I'm, I, I'd rather you be a good person, a good rider, and really push that forward. So right. uh, when you talk to other trail users out there, if somebody was to fly by you on a mountain bike or, or cause some disruption... They're not at all going to be focused on, was that an e-bike or not? That was a mountain biker. (laughs) And the same thing goes for decision makers and and land managers. You know, they view the e-bike conversation as kind of infighting, you know, the -hmm. the sibling rivalry within the mountain bike world. And we need to figure that out before they're going to worry too much about it. So I think it is a little bit more of a a thing that we as mountain bikers and the community of mountain bikers just need to embrace and say, hey, we are all part of the same community. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, if you never want to ride an electric mountain bike, that's fine. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that anybody's going to force you to do that. Yeah. But I do think that we need to recognize that there's a variety in the mountain bike community. There's people that love rigid single speeds. There's people that love electronic shifting. There's people that love all these other bits and pieces. And to me, e-bikes are just a, a piece of that, especially on the social side. Fully acknowledging the technical side, there's a lot of work to be done. But that's the same. Advocacy issues that mountain bikers have worked on for the last 30 plus years is an access issue. So uh, I think those conversations and the relationships that we've created at NEMBA are are exactly the place to ensure that we have those conversations. And again, I really do call to the people that that have electric mountain bikes and people that want greater access for e-bikes to come forward and, and help us on that. You know, we are very much so happy to, to be an avenue to work with. But um, at times, I don't I don't actually know that I know the best ways to advocate for them. Um, whereas if people that have that experience and have that drive and passion, if they could step forward and, and help us on that, that would be huge.
0: Yeah. I mean, judging by the comments that we get anytime we write about e-bikes, the people who ride them, they are they are extremely passionate. I mean, if you look five years ago, it was more the anti-e-bike people were, were very passionate. But I think the the e-bikers themselves now are, they've won upped Uh, the the anti-crowd. And so, yeah, I mean, that passion is real and that people really do care. I mean, yeah, this is a great call to action to say, join in, help us out. We're
1: seeing really cool opportunities with the industry getting involved, with other organizations getting involved. We have a a pilot project coming online from uh, People for Bikes, you know, obviously uh, uh, the nonprofit arm of the industry really is, you know, in in a good way. You know they're they're basically looking for pilot studies in New England, working with VIMBA and NEMBA to to do e mountain bike you know basically studies of trail impact whether that's user conflicts or erosion or et cetera et cetera of, of doing side by sides and seeing what the what that data looks like. You know the large reason there being whenever you bring this conversation up and you present an IMBA study that was done out west, people will say that's great, but that, how does that translate to the trails in Maine or the trails here? So I'm excited to see more studies like that more data more that's more on the technical side and the legal side but uh you know i'm excited to see that that is moving forward and and that there's an acknowledgement of the need for that um from the industry or just in general from the the community so i do agree with you that the the shift in the the mentality has certainly been noticeable in the last few years um there will always be the the small percentage that you know Uh, choose that that's the hill they're going to die on um, in the sense that, you know, I never want e-bikes, which, you know, pick your battles, that's fine, whatever. But uh, I think that in general, like all things that are new, there's probably a strong opposition at first and then kind of an acceptance period or a a, a period where people just don't care. (laughs) And and then it just kind of becomes the norm. So I think we're kind of in that middle right now. And and, um, I suspect, you know, they're not going away anytime soon. You know, uh, so I think that we're going to just see that acceptance continue to grow.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, given all the things we've talked about, all the issues and and things that Nimba uh, faces, what's what's the biggest constraint for you for going out and, and growing that mission or, or just continuing
1: the mission? I'd say that our biggest constraint is also our biggest asset, and that's our volunteer base. You know, we really up until. When I came on board, or, or even more recent than that, we really were a very small staff, a very small regional office, where almost, you know ninety percent or more of the efforts were reliant on volunteers at the local grassroots level, which is an amazing thing and, and very much so a network I want to continue, but also has its has its challenges around you know standardization or transfer of knowledge or efficiency, if you will, you know, when eight people are working on the same challenge and, and aren't, you know, aren't talking or at least sharing what their experience is, it, it, it leads to multiple ways of things happening or just less efficient. So I'd say that's one of the big challenges and something that I'm excited to, to tackle is, you know, um, providing better resources to our chapters, better templates, better how to's um, mm-hmm. around everything from putting on a great event to. Uh, approaching a land manager around e-mountain bike you know conversations and everything in between um, and that's really where I see the regional office you know our our duty is really just to be kind of that resource hub um mm-hmm. to all the the spokes that are our chapters and and, and that's exciting to me you know I, yeah. I think we have a volunteer and chapter coordinator now we have an operations coordinator we have you know membership coordinator. We have all these, these pieces that are really meant to strengthen the chapters, which is exciting. And I think then we can kind of let those leaders have the tools and, and give them support along the way. And, and I think we're only going to see the organization grow from there. I think there'll be plenty of growing pains and, and, and things that we need to work out along the way, but, um, but I think that we're headed in a very positive direction right now, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's
0: great that you were able to increase the staff and, and those resources. How were you able to do that? I mean, it seems like funding would be a major constraint to getting to that point. Totally.
1: Yeah, funding is certainly, a, a in the mountain bike world or just the nonprofit world in general, funding um, is always a challenge. You know, we were fortunate enough to get a grant um, from a, a local foundation to bring on a full-time staff member for this more chapter and volunteer Uh, engagement or chapter resources, so that's definitely one of the pieces that I was very excited about um, being able to bring a a full-time staff on to kind of be a primary resource for the chapters. So I encourage everybody to keep their eyes open for foundations and organizations that very much so align with their mission, and and we are fortunate enough to have one in, in the Boston area, which is great. There's also, you know, we as an organization kind of prioritized growth in our membership Again, recognizing that 8,000 is a great number, but there's a lot more, especially given the boom recently, there's a lot more uh, demand that we can find. So um, we kind of agreed to bring on a membership focused position with the goal of expanding that membership, with the goal that that membership growth does offset at least some, if not all, of that cost. And then, you know, NembaFest has always been a large fundraiser for this organization. And we were fortunate enough to have some leftover funds from previous years that. We were able to kind of put into an events position, or with the goal of, of course, bringing back a strong NEMBA fest. So these are unique situations that certainly don't exist at every nonprofit, but we're fortunate enough to have a a pretty diverse revenue stream—you know, membership and donations and events and grants—that we're able to support a larger team. I I do think there's a little bit of catch-up that we're playing as well. You know, NEMBA has—it's not like in the last couple of years we've. Quadrupled in size as far as membership. I think there's just been a a latent demand to to increase the office and the staff and the support that we provide. And, and fortunately, there's an existing membership base and and funding sources that can support that. So we're lucky, that's for sure. But it's been a big a big shift and one I'm I'm thankful for my my board for uh, for uh, approving and understanding
0: for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, it sounds like NIMBA has a lot of uh, great things in store, uh, lots of great plans for 2022. So, like, what's what's your wildest dream for mountain biking in New England? Like, you know, I mean, we've got all the stuff, all the steps, like the stuff that's going to happen, you know, most likely, and, and you've got things in place. But, like, what's what's, like, the big dream for
1: you? I mean, so the interesting thing, that's a good question, the big dream. The big dream for me is that anybody that wants to access mountain biking is able to do that. you know that's a lofty that's a very broad you know I can dive into all the specifics specifics of that, but it really is the goal of of increased access for everybody that that wants it and and there's probably plenty of people that don't even know they want it yet, but if all of a sudden there's a trail system you know down the street from your house and and there's an opportunity to get on a bike, whether that's borrowing or a low cost entry to it you know, that's, that's huge. Let alone our, you know, we start looking and we're working a lot more with adaptive use and people who might have not otherwise been able to, to get out and, and ride the, the rugged rake and ride single track. As we look at what standards we need to put in place to give access to those folks and, and really just increasing our, our DEI efforts and and really just creating a mountain bike community that represents everybody. That's, that's the goal. Mm -hmm. And, The interesting thing about the the lofty goal is it's in my mind, it's never achieved, which sounds horrible, but it's really it's a constant thing we're working towards. And as we get closer to achieving it, ideally, we just push that goal further out so that we we have more things to work towards, which is, is cool. I mean, we are an organization that will forever have things to do in a good way. We've shifted from. Yeah. Primarily being an advocacy organization to being a trail maintenance and trail building organization to being a community building organization, so we have some pretty strong focuses that kind of ebb and flow depending on where a chapter is in its in its cycle in its in its growth period so and that's that's exciting uh, you know we we're yeah we are huge in the sense when I start looking at all of the little details at every chapter and then times that by 32. So it's good to have big goals, but I also love accomplishing the little things as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer, man. I'm still stuck on, on your idea of, you know, thinking about the people who don't even know that they want to mountain bike and that, that they could benefit from it. I mean, I think that's that is a huge goal. And like you said, it's one that you'll never, you never meet, you'll never know if you met it, but that's,
1: that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's get everybody out there and, and, and kind of, I think back to my, my days as a kid, I, you know, I had a mountain bike in my garage and I was far more interested in playing on that than, than my N64 or whatever I had at the time. So let's shift back to where, you know, you bike over to your friend's house, you bike out to the trails, you build forts in the woods, you do whatever it is. (laughs) <laughs> let alone i mean heck that could be a 50 year old adult for all i care go build a fort that's fun so but yeah i think like you said you we have no idea who that is and we'll never know but i think if that's our goal of of making mountain biking accessible for everybody um, whether they know it or not uh, i think it's huge that that's definitely the, the dream
0: yeah Awesome. Well, Travis, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me and for all the work that you and your volunteers and staff are doing uh, to promote mountain biking in New England. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, you can get more information and connect with NIMBA at nimba.org. And we'll have that link for you in the show notes as well. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again
1: next week.